0: Welcome to NatSecTech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve, and it's great to have you join us. In our last episode, Ramsey Brown laid out his vision for how artificial intelligence is going to change our lives in the age of synthetic labor. To sum it up, he says it will change just about everything about our work and how we live. Ramsey is the CEO and founder of Mission Control, a machine learning governance platform for accelerating quality, velocity, and trust in AI. Today, we're going to talk about ethics, regulation, and national security. So Vladimir Putin said years ago, whoever leads in AI will rule the world. Is that still true or even more true than ever?
1: It's even more true than ever. So Russia is falling egregiously behind in the what we consider the global strategic AI arms race, as to almost be a a not serious competitive threat. Uh, but I cannot uh, I cannot agree with the sentiment more, even though I can't agree with the man um, that the the direction of our global conversation for what it means to live in a, in a multipolar world will increasingly become bipolar, unipolar when one nation is able to pull out decisively ahead of all others in their meaningful ability to master the use of artificial intelligence. There's, there's not a doubt in anyone's mind that that's the case.
0: So President Xi has indicated that China is going to win this race, is it?
1: I don't believe so. Um, I think that the United States is going to win this race. Um, I think that uh, in response to the, the, the master stroke that was the administration's CHIPS Act, we've effectively made clear that not only is it a priority to continue to onshore uh, and support our, our allies in chip production and semiconductor manufacturing, uh, but that those who would otherwise seek to take the benefits of, of working in American organizations and institutions and then repatriate that information and knowledge back to our near peer adversaries isn't a isn't a, a viable plan anymore and in doing so has effectively decapitated the the chinese chip manufacturing industry which really is along with their data streams the lifeblood of a competitive ai industry um the u.s and the companies domiciled in the united states currently lead on all fronts in the manufacturing of semiconductor technologies and the advanced state-of-the-art in artificial intelligence research and development. Now, that doesn't mean that China isn't competitive in this space. They obviously are. Uh, But I'm extremely bullish on the United States' likelihood of being the dominant actor in this space.
0: There have been recent reports about China making advances in quantum. Does that disturb you? Do you think that's real?
1: I think that's real. I think that there's a, a really strong incentive for every major technological state to build domestic capability around quantum computing Um, at the most esoteric end of it there's new and exotic types of computations and calculations that could be performed with quantum computers that we're still exploring that might confer decisive strategic global advantage and at the quotidian we're, we're relatively confident that modern cryptographic approaches, the very technology that keeps our communication secret between people, between one another, between people and companies, and between the government and its own agencies or the military, that that, that cryptography that keeps our messages secure could be trivially broken with sufficiently adequate quantum technology. Uh, in that same way, you know, the United States is still strongly incentivized to have a, a good strategic position on quantum too. And I think more than anything, the incentive and value structure alignment in the states around this attitude of incentivizing innovation, being able to finance and fund from the state and private sector, these collaborations with one another and with academia, this model and the the fundamental values underneath the animated, I think is a, is a winning model. And, and that makes me really optimistic on the state's likelihood of, of being the dominant player in these advanced technologies.
0: We talked in the last episode about how these new computing capabilities are going to change the labor market. How are they going to change the national security landscape?
1: Uh, in in a few major ways. The United States military is, if I recall properly, the single largest employer on earth, um, when you look at just that just by the numbers. Um, and it's going to have a series of incentives to maintain high human capabilities and throughputs so types of things that advanced automation uh can do around the parts of the post-industrial or what we call like white collar economy um that private organizations are going to have incentives to to de-person and and uh, have a reduction in force i don't see the military having an exact analog of the incentive because of the importance of having people on the ground uh, because of the relationship that that has to, to being able to, to be strategically um, well positioned. So this same reduction in, in force incentives, I don't think are going to quite be there. Uh, when we look at the operational capabilities, we see two things. We see the changing nature of the advanced warfighter uh, in which the ability to meaningfully extract signal from noise to be able to tell what's going on with increased situational awareness, both in terms of the ability to see and do more with less information and to make better meaning and goal-oriented behavior out of that has obviously been increasing. And we look to advanced edge companies like Palantir and Anduril right now who are leading in the AI space domestically around improving those types of capabilities. Um, And the second thing we see is then what it means for um, signals intelligence and integration and being able to have uh, just at an understanding of national security, how we might use these more advanced and even agentic systems to be able to have a better understanding of the current threat landscape and be able to extrapolate and infer what near threats may be and be able to act more proactively in precise and targeted ways. A lot of the story of warfare of the past you know, 200 years has been to decrease collateral damage and to increase the specificity and and precision by which different types of interventions can be made and we see AI as being uh, absolutely no different than any other piece of this in increasing our ability to to act purposefully and decisively and specifically to achieve our goals.
0: right now when it comes to weapon systems, humans are in the loop. Would they ultimately be removed, do you think?
1: Almost every country except the United States has banned a unilateral treaty about lethal autonomous weapon systems. The United States refuses to sign it, um, which, which does raise its, its own interesting host of questions. Um, when we think about what we mean, we say a lethal autonomous weapon system. Uh, it's one thing to have an autonomous weapon system that is neither capable nor legally allowed to end a human life. It's one thing to have a weapon system that is not autonomous, that is capable of, of ending human life. This question becomes, can you combine those and have something that is legally and capable, legally defensible and capable of autonomously deciding and executing um, the the elimination of a target? And that is something that a lot of scholars and regulators, governments and um, military specialists have looked at abroad and said, we need a global consensus that we're just not going down this path. The United States has not very vocally joined that process and one can do a little bit of back of napkin math to understand some of the incentives at play there especially when we're looking at a global air arms race of why that might be the case why might it be the case uh so I'm I'm not I'm not going to pretend to be a military legal expert and domestic legal expert or a military strategy expert but I think that there's a pretty clear game theoretics to be played there where there the safe deployment of lethal autonomous weapon systems um, for which quality, of velocity, and trust are baked in at their core could confer decisive global strategic advantage when it came to advanced warfighting. And I think the United States looks at that and one could imagine there being some obvious reticence or some counterproductive incentive structures there to agree to that. Now, that doesn't mean that that's a sustainable position or the right position because a lot of folks have pointed out uh, very, very brilliant strategists, uh, computer scientists, engineers, data scientists, and and military lawyers that we don't even have a fundamental understanding at a theoretical level of whether or not we are capable of containing, controlling, or otherwise adequately aligning sufficiently advanced AI systems. And that's bad enough if they were just benign or trying to help you write a good poem if you've strapped a weapons delivery system to them, you, you're really entering um, what we've otherwise treated as sci-fi territory very quickly. And there is a series of, of domestic and international companies racing to develop these technologies as fast as they can. And all of these considerations that at once appeared very hypothetical are becoming very logistical right now.
0: What you're talking about is the possibility that machines could destroy each other or could destroy us. Is that right?
1: Yeah, and I'll I'll go back to I, I I want to stand on the shoulders of giants here. You go you go listen to interviews done with uh, the the CEO of OpenAI, Sam Altman, of the team behind ChatGPT, talking about the best case and worst case scenarios. And he's very clear that the, the worst case scenario here is the complete elimination of the human species. Um, and it is not a hypothetical. It is not a um, twenty nine hundred problem. It is not a uh, you've gotten carried away and you you know stayed up too late watching too many scary movies type of things. It is an active point of contention and debate between leading scientists at teams like Google and their subsidiary DeepMind, which is one of their AI research divisions, um, that is acknowledging that at a, just a base mathematical level, it is unclear that there is any route to adequately containing, controlling, or aligning these types of systems, even when they're benign or even when they're just business machines. And that is a completely orthogonal conversation to whether or not they've been given the means or the legal clearance to end human life. So if we're looking at the basic fundamentals and saying, there is a good chance that just by the textbook, this could destroy everything. And then you think about including the ability to uh, purposefully and intentionally violently end life as a feature and not a bug, you are wading into extremely dangerous territory. And the countries that have signed Uh, different memorandums of understanding around the banning of lethal autonomous weapon systems look at data like this and say you'd have to be a mad person to want to continue to develop down that path given that the fundamentals of whether or not we can contain control or align these systems are still not just open for debate but are resoundingly being said by the world's leading experts that it's not doable we'd have to be insane to to go down that road
0: well, there are plenty of people who might fall into the category of insane in this world, who might have the capability to build and use these systems, right? And how do we prevent that from happening?
1: We're fortunate that these systems are relatively hard to develop. Um, but uh, the what previously has been a futurist, but now is a, a, a senior leader at Google, uh, the futurist and inventor Ray Kurzweil has, has pointed out that over the 20th century, the, the risk of the, the 20th century's uh, major global strategic threats were atomic, biological, and chemical in nature. And these were advanced systems that were extremely expensive to develop. And once one person figured out how to develop them, the information required to copy that process and develop them yourself was still really hard to come by and very prohibitively expensive and resource-intense. Uh, if just because you've seen how to build an atomic bomb does not mean you can turn around and build an atomic bomb yourself, um, which is why we did not have as much proliferation, even though we had quite a bit. The 20th century was not as bad as it could have been. When we look at the 21st century, he looks at genetics, nanotechnology, and robotics and AI as being actually quite dissimilar threats where the marginal cost of reproducing an AI system that's already been built is quite low. So When he looks at this, he says that we're actually entering a new threat landscape here because unlike building a a fusion bomb, uh, building a sufficiently poorly aligned artificial intelligence system may be considered basically trivial. Um, So what do we do here? The conversations look uh, like advancing the state of the art in control. Can we get them to, to play along nicely, so to speak? Containment. Can we develop adequate strategies for... Uh, keeping them in the sandbox, so to speak, and alignment. When we say, please help with this task, what do they hear and how do we keep that basically lined up with what we thought we were asking for? So that's our first aspect is is those researching capabilities. Um, a backstop that many are pointing to here is regulation. Uh, what can be done by the state and by multilateral organizations like the United Nations or the OECD to put forth standards and expectations? That uh, companies and individuals and developers are incentivized to to play within. Um, mind you, this type of regulation we personally believe is like a good backstop, but it's not a front line of defense. Um, the threat of police action for data privacy violations with something like the Europeans' General Data Privacy Regulation (GDPR) that pop up you keep getting on websites—that um, is a it, it's a it's a stick, not a carrot. And it's a stick that's only actually used rarely. And when it does, people laud the law for its efficacy, but they forget that there are thousands of violations of it that are happening constantly. They just pick a couple big cases to make an example out of install the capability they have for it. In that same way, um, AI regulation will be a backstop, but not a, a front-running solution. So we need to come up with different types of incentives here, different uh, technological tools and different basic research concepts that are going to help research and engineering teams be able to push this forward safely and quickly, because we know the incentives here are so strong towards this development that no one's going to stop. No one is incentivized to stop this right now. No one's even incentivized to slow down a little bit. The only incentive anyone is facing is the incentive to dramatically accelerate this process, and they're going to do so. The question becomes, how can that be done with quality, of velocity, and trust baked in, which is is what my team and my organization focuses on so much, that scales out to businesses, to militaries, to governments, and everyone's trying to crack that nut right now.
0: And so, basically, the one, two, three things you'd like to see happen that would keep this in check.
1: I'd like to see greater public discourse and education about this. It is, you do not have to know how your computer works to know that you probably don't want a hacker or a virus in it. In that same way, we need folks who are uh, normal, uh, non-technical, consumer-grade private individuals who are comfortable playing with advanced AI technologies like ChatGPT, who are also comfortable with the idea that at a a critical level, there is a right and a wrong way to do this, and there's a right and a wrong thing to want out of this. So that first thing, education, and literacy around not just here's how AI works, but here's the impact on society, on ourselves, on our identities, on economics. And there is a discourse to be had there and a way to push that conversation forward. That's the first thing. Second thing I'd want to see is more technology companies who are at the forefront of building this or adopting these technologies, baking in these resilience and trust mechanisms into the tools themselves. If you're going to put GPT inside a consumer app, How are you doing so where you are able to monitor and keep an eye on what's passing through that to make sure that the content isn't harmful, you're not putting people at risk. Same way, if you're developing advanced technology that is going to be dealing with people's personal data, uh, pictures of their face, anything about their finances, how do you take care around these things and bake that trust directly into what you're doing? That You're not trying to retrofit that on afterwards, but but uh, you're you're having that be instrumental. And then finally, how do you help policymakers wrap their head around this change that's not coming, it's happening right now? You're you're looking at a a global financial uh, unfolding of a recession, and you're looking at that happening at the same time as the rise of increasingly competent automation. And it's hard to not look at both things at the same time and say, This is going to result in my constituents having hard conversations with me about what I'm doing about automation. That's a conversation that we're missing. And that's a conversation we need to be accelerating, not just our regulation at a standards level. But what does this mean for me? What does this mean for my constituents? What does this mean for their livelihood? And what does this mean for our process? So that means international rules, correct? It's international rules. We've got some really great organizations like the Responsible AI Institute, working alongside teams like the International Standards Organization and the OECD to bridge the different national-level regulations such that when the European's EU AI Act comes online in 2024 or 2025, when the United States National Institute of Standards and Technology AI Risk Management Framework comes online, when ISO 47001 comes online, all of these different interchangeable uh expectations and standards for anti-risk management, how do we build the bridges between them such that if you're Microsoft or Google, or even you're a small app company looking to have a global presence, you're able to do so according to the compliance requirements of each of these. And how do we make that compliance trivial for teams to get up to speed with?
0: How do you deal with a country like Iran, a country like North Korea, um, who may be working to develop some of these capabilities as well?
1: I think that's going to look a lot like our response to atomic energy and chemical warfare Um, so i think over the next few years at a strategic level we're going to start seeing advanced ai technologies being subject to things like export control Uh, right now we know that if you are a manufacturer of advanced graphic process units gpus which are the piece of hardware in your computer we used to use them predominantly for video games, and we found out that the math that makes neural networks run was just like the math for making Call of Duty run. And now these are the, the front line of hardware for AI research and development and machine learning. Um, if you're these companies building these 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 $10,000 pieces of equipment, these are going to increasingly become subject to things like export controls, where it's going to be harder and harder for rogue states on the open market to get their hands on these. Um, and the sheer quantity of them makes, them obst- uh, makes it... Hard to compete on the market to acquire enough compute at a cost point that's effective to be able to play catch up. So the interesting question becomes: as compute proliferates, just the raw amount of processor power we have, as the cost plummets, how do we still stay out ahead of that? I think that's going to increasingly look like treating these technologies. Like you treat enriched uranium, or you treat um, the chemical processes required to make dirty bombs. And we're going to start seeing more international pressure and accords around how those are developed. The question is, on what timeline is that going to happen? Are we going to blast forward fast enough in artificial general intelligence capabilities that the cat's going to be out of the bag much faster than we're going to be able to do it? Because in the words of Marshall McLuhan, uh, politics by definition is like trying to drive your car forward by only looking at the rear view mirror. Um, it's, it's trying to look at what's already happened to determine where I'm supposed to go. Um, it's not a really effective way, especially if the, to, to navigate, especially if the road is changing in front of you faster and faster and faster. Um, so in that extent, I think it's going to be more conversations like this and more private public consortiums where we're able to strategically move the needle on how we want to create a climate of trust and expectations around these, and then how we hold states accountable.
0: So, lots and lots of risks. The governance mechanisms not yet in place, but we can't stop the advancement, can we? This is galloping ahead.
1: We can't stop the advancement, um, but we can uh, put on seatbelts and helmets. So, you know, my organization looked at this and said that the upsides of the, the wide-scale deployment of advanced data technologies and AI will bring in an unprecedented era of global flourishing in which we get to live in that version of the future that we all as children still thought was a thing that could be in which the quality of life for every uh, person and child is substantially better than it's ever been on the back of human ingenuity and creativity and purpose and passion and that is still a deep cause for optimism for us we've come to understand too is that this is also being meted out at the same time as an unparalleled existential and strategic risk. And we don't get to have one without the other, unfortunately, they're architecturally in in one another. Um, So the question becomes, what can we do to accelerate the conversation around governance? Governance at the regulatory and multilateral and national level. At the strategic level, we're thinking, what set of values do we want captured in these systems? And then at the corporate level, which you can produce tools and technologies, ideas and community that helps teams build quality, velocity, trust directly into what they're doing. That's the purpose of our organization. And we see that as being one of the, the most important problems on earth right now and increasing proliferation of these types of tools. And the daily increase in their adoption is a reminder that we are working against something like a ticking clock. And we we view this as not just a critical mission, but a, a timely one as well. And we're excited to, to work with and meet the teams at the the corporate and uh, the public sector level who are looking at this as a priority and and want to sink their teeth into what can be done about it.
0: Ramsey Brown, CEO and founder of Emission Control. Thanks again for joining us to discuss a very complex set of issues. It has been wonderful to have you join us.
1: Gene, thank you so much for having me. The joy has been mine.
0: I'm Gene Mazerve, and thanks for joining us for NatSec Tech. Do so again. In the meantime, take care.